Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and on this week's Fordham Conversations, we'll examine the issue of poverty from different vantage points. I sit down with Fordham professor Dr. Sophie Mitra to discuss the relationship between disability and poverty. But first, a look at youth and homelessness. Some 60,000 people are homeless in New York City, the highest amount since the Great Depression. Experts say the shelter system is overburdened, and young people with nowhere to go struggle with city bureaucracy, strict curfews, and sometimes dangerous shelters. Reporter Emrys Ellers takes us along as he talks with young people who sleep in unusual places to avoid city shelters. Eugene Jenkins is a dancer from Brooklyn. And sometimes, after a long day running around the city, he'll sleep the morning away. Be careful with your personal belongings. On the subway. Almost every night, it's warmer in the trains, especially the E-train. It's Sunday evening. The weekend crowd is heading home. I asked Eugene if there's a problem with sleeping on the subway. If there is, I wouldn't know because I got used to sleeping on a train. It's illegal to sleep in public spaces. You just can't lay down. That's the thing. It's the trick to making the so-called mobile shelter system work. Eugene, like many young homeless people, chooses to sleep on the trains because he says shelters aren't safe. I have seen people pulling out knives out of their lockers during the night. I called and emailed the Department of Homeless Services, but they never responded. Young people are a lot more likely to live in a state of semi-homelessness, sometimes sleeping with friends or sneaking into an abusive parent's basement for a few hours. And sometimes they're simply breaking night, which is just staying awake all night. So the trains are just one option, but a popular one. It's definitely like a part of like the, like the whole experience I've experienced here in New York City. This is Lauren. She's 22, a hairdresser from Virginia. We talked at a homeless drop-in center in the basement of a church in the West Village. I moved here um, with my makeup kit and my hairdressing kit and my best outfits. Lauren is transgendered. She was born Lorenzo. After being harassed in shelters, she slept on the trains for a while. I would grab my little purse and like it would be a Mickey Mouse purse. I'd rest my little head on top of it and guard it with my arms. With her coat as a blanket and Mickey Mouse purse as a pillow, she faced some scary situations. Wearing like little clothes, little dresses, and like when you fall asleep, you wake up with somebody trying to molest you or like touch you. Still, she says the shelters are worse, especially adult men's shelters. Another thing. She can get off the trains anytime, whereas shelters have strict lockdowns each night. I believe in yourself, independence, like being a badass, my own boss. Like, I live for that. That's just who I am. The type of girl I am. After a while, she didn't feel safe sleeping in the shelters or the subway. But I was always trying to like hustle, meet like new friends and people who would let me stay with them so I don't have to sleep in a train. That's like Marilyn Monroe did. Of the estimated 4,000 homeless youth in New York City, something like 40% are LGBT. There's a real safety issue in the adult city shelters, especially for LGBT people, younger people, and people with disabilities. That's Kate Barnhart. She runs the LGBT drop-in center where I met Lauren. I've had clients who were physically assaulted, gay-bashed, or um, harassed for being transgender by both staff and clients alike. New York has around 350 beds in youth shelters. But Barnhart says that's not nearly enough. I visited three different drop-in centers, and I heard a lot of horror stories. Young people face many challenges in adult shelters. Insults and threats, but also... They can sort of be pulled in and be taken advantage of and exploited sexually, physically, what have you. That's Jim Bolas. 
I'm the executive director of the Coalition for Homeless Youth. They work with youth programs across the state, training staff, collecting data. In addition to physical danger, Boa says young people really can't handle all the bureaucracy in city shelters. He says young people are still figuring out who they are, and they need some freedom to do that. Then there's the issue of jumping the turnstiles. They often get arrested and end up at Rikers for not paying tickets. I mean, that definitely leads to the downward spiral. He says youth shelters with trained staff really can make a difference in getting these kids off the streets. And if that's not provided, it just exacerbates the situation and ends up making them more at risk of chronic homelessness as adults. Now remember Eugene, the dancer? He's 25. He's been sleeping on the trains almost every night for five years. It's his best option. Unless people stop bringing weapons into the shelter, then maybe it will be safer to go back. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Eugene got off at Herald Square, where he can check email at a retail store before it closes. On the platform, a guy with a guitar sang classic rock, and Eugene paused for a minute. I thought he might bust out a few moves. But it was folky, and he just walked up the stairs and out of the subway. That was reporter Emrys Ellers, and this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. In the U.S., a person with a disability is less likely to complete high school, more likely to experience unemployment, and even have a higher level of marital hardship. And on a global scale, the diagnosis is sometimes worse. I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Mitra, an associate professor in Fordham University's economics department. We discuss the relationship between disability and poverty. Can I call you Sophie? Sure. Well, good morning and welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, Dr. Mitra, I'd like uh, to first focus on the association between disability and poverty in the U.S. before taking a look at it on a worldwide scope. Uh, So when most people think of poverty, they think of a lack of money. But when you use it, it's more than just about money. So can you explain what disability means? Okay, well, thanks for asking. That's an important question because there's not one way to define disability. Uh, so in everyday language, the meaning of disability is, is elusive. And I use the term disability to refer to a physical and mental uh, condition that limits a person's movements or functions, uh, senses, activities. So uh, it's going to capture a very diverse uh, group people with uh, disabilities that are invisible, visible, temporary, or permanent, uh, physical, mental, or social. I do not use the term to refer to inability to work, although I know that it's often used this way in the U.S., especially when people talk about going on disability. So they refer to specific programs linked to inability to work. I'll use it to um, to capture a broader group um, who often can work and have a fulfilling life if they live in an environment that uh, lets them do so without barriers. So how can poverty increase the risk of disability? Understanding poverty as material uh, deprivation, poverty through a lack of access to health care, timely health care or quality health care could lead to a disability. Poverty in the form of food insecurity, malnutrition could lead to Uh, disability. So there are various ways whereby material deprivations 
food-wise, healthcare-wise, living condition-wise, work condition-wise could lead to disability. So you also say someone with a disability is more likely to have a lower rate of employment. Why is that? That's a major uh, challenge uh, in the U.S. In the U.S., the employment rate of people with disabilities uh, is as low as 18 percent or around 18 percent. So there could be uh, various things happening. It could be an onset of a disability and the person uh, is... um, it perhaps needs to, to change the kind of work he or she is doing, or perhaps it's a question of changing the work environment and having accommodations in the workplace. So this process is, is a complex one, and there are challenges in getting people to hold on to their jobs once there is the onset of a disability or returning to work if they needed to take a break from work due to a disability onset. And then also for for people who uh, grew up with a disability, there is the challenge of having access to, to education and, and job opportunities. Uh, so that takes us to the lower educational attainment rate that you mentioned before. Have you yeah. found at all that there may be a challenge getting a, a job because there is some form of discrimination on the employer's side? Yeah, so there is evidence that there is some discrimination, uh, not out of my own research, but there is some evidence that discrimination plays a role. It's not the only factor explaining uh, the low employment rate, but there, there is a barrier in the form of negative attitudes from employers that affects hiring, that affects that could affect promotion or, or retaining a job. Is it that yeah. they think the person who has a disability might not uh, be able to do the job or might have to be out sick or something more often than maybe someone who doesn't have a disability? It, yeah, it could be. It could be a concern about productivity, uh, whether or not that's justified. That's another uh, story. It may well not be justified at all. And it may be just a worrying flag for a potential employer that accommodations will be needed. So, Sophie, in your research, you found people with disabilities are less likely to complete high school, let alone a post-secondary education. What factors stand in their way? The U.S. has made a lot of progress in the field of education, making schools and and universities accessible. But there is still a lot of work to do uh, in terms of accessibility, in terms of providing accommodations to students, to to really um, be able to tap into their potential and, and have them you know, flourish in a school setting, in an inclusive school setting. When you yeah. mean accessibility, do you also uh, mean actually having access to buildings or access to being able to move around comfortably in uh, buildings? Is that also part Yeah, of it? so accessibility uh, is a broad term, so that includes physical accessibility, as you described, but also also social accessibility, um, having attitudes that are open and positive regarding the potential of, of kids with disabilities in school. Um, it's also uh, accessibility to information material. If you have a sensory disability, maybe a hearing limitation, a visual imp- Im- limitation, having school materials that are in the right format. So it's a broad term. So, Sophie, your research found that people with disabilities tend to have lower levels of political participation. So help me understand why that is. Well, there is, um, for, for you know, there are barriers to uh, political participation, physical barrier, accessibility of transportation, getting to the 
the, the, the getting to to vote physically so that we are still facing these challenges and 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 perhaps as well uh, you know a history of low participation P- people who haven't participated because the environment was not accessible need to be convinced that now things have, are, are changing and they, they they are now empowered to to vote because there might because there yeah. might be access they but since there hasn't been access maybe right. a bus ride right. so, or a taxi or something they can pick them up yeah. because it hasn't been there for so long they might not know about it or might not be feel comfortable taking it because they don't know how they're going to be able to function right okay yeah Sophie how does the Census Bureau measure poverty and what impact does that have on the resources provided to someone with a disability Okay, thanks for asking. The, the, the Census Bureau uh, measures poverty um, as low income. So if you have an income bef- below the poverty line, you're considered poor. Um, and uh, s- some social programs use a, a similar criteria of low income and uh, low, um, low asset ownership for, for benefits. Um, so in our recent research study that you're referring to, more likely to be uh, poor, whatever the measure, we found that when we measure um, poverty as income, low income, people with disabilities are more likely to be poor. But when we use another measure, uh, which looks at multiple deprivations of well-being that people may experience at the same time, such as low educational attainment, non-employment, high health care expenditures, out-of-pocket expenditures, low political participation, uh, we found that actually people with disabilities look even more poor compared to people without disabilities than when we focus on income. So having a, a, a poverty measure that is that is more comprehensive and looks at non-material dimensions of well-being actually make people with disabilities look um, even more disadvantaged than they uh, than an income measure would suggest. And how does that affect the person who has a disability being having this particular label? Well, we don't want to we don't want to suggest that all people with disabilities are poor or or that you know having a disability leads to a life of poverty. That's certainly not not the case, and that shouldn't be you know what's uh, <laughs> what's understood broadly. But it it means that currently in the United States there is this strong association between disability on the one hand, and deprivations in well-being, material, social, political, uh, that need to be addressed. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, here with Dr. Sophia Mitra, an associate professor at Fordham University's Economics Department. Dr. Mitra and I are discussing the misconceptions and realities behind poverty and disability on a global scale. Why is it important to study disabilities in developing countries? Uh, well, in developing countries, uh, often dis- disability does not count. There is no data. The, phenom- the phenomenon is really not visible. And the, the view of the international development community uh, perhaps can be captured by what a policymaker told me a, a few years ago in India. He told me, we have so many challenges, so much poverty. We cannot deal with disability because it affects so few people. So there is this perception that disability is very rare and thus is irrelevant. Um, so they won't have any programs for them because they right. think, oh, there's, this is, people a, won't really need it because there's so few of them there. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- there are misconceptions about the extent of uh, of the phenomenon, about 
Um, but but we've made some advances in recent years. We, advances in measurement of disability in global surveys that shows that disability is not rare is and is more prevalent in developing countries. Globally, prevalence is at 14-15% among adults, um, with 80% of people with disabilities living in developing countries. And one in four poor, poor people globally um, having a disability. So it is an important issue uh, in the context of poverty reduction worldwide, in the context of international development. Have you noticed that there are different types of disabilities in the U.S. compared to other countries? Like the U.S. might have this, you know, these top three types of disabilities where another country might have these, et cetera? Um, Yes, I, it's kind of it varies a lot across countries, but yeah, in in general, uh, you could say that physical disability tend to be more prevalent in developing countries, uh, whereas mental uh, disabilities maybe are more prevalent in the U.S. But there is a lot of uh, cross-country variation. So, Sophie, is it better, let's say, to live in the U.S. and have a disability compared to living in a developing country? Um, well, that's a tricky question. Overall, I'd say that uh, it is better to live in a high-income country such as the U.S. with a disability. Um, first of all, there's the question of, of survival for some disability types. For instance, if you have uh, spinal cord injury and you're in a resource-poor poor setting, um, maybe after a disaster, think of Pakistan or Haiti after an earthquake, uh, it's likely, you know, so if I have that injury, it's likely that I'm not going to uh, to survive. In a high-income setting like the U.S., I will survive and I'll probably have access to to um, quality health care, rehabilitation services. Uh, with my job as a professor, I can access my office in a wheelchair. I can go back to teach. Um, my The buildings are accessible. Uh, so in general, the physical environment is better in in a country like the U.S. than in developing countries with elevators, ramps. Um, but I, I, I would still encounter challenges, uh, economic ones. I would need to adapt my house, my car, um, social ones. Maybe I won't be able to go to a place of worship uh, if it's not accessible. And maybe attitudinal barriers. Uh, maybe people will start looking at me differently now that I'm in a wheelchair. So, you know, challenges will be there, but but certainly less than in a developing uh, country. Now, having said that, the U.S. is not necessarily better on all fronts for a person with a disability. And with respect to employment, as we said before, employment is a huge challenge for people with disabilities in the U.S., and uh, the employment rates of people with disabilities is, tends to be higher in developing countries. Uh, so in developing economies, a lot of jobs are in uh, agriculture or in informal uh, employment, such as very small, um, very, very small businesses, self-employment opportunities. And it, it seems like it's a more flexible labor market environment um, to... Um, return to work after a disability uh, onset or hold on to a job. And there is also some evidence that evidence suggesting that for some disability types like psychiatric disabilities, um, developing countries' labor markets are more flexible and people are able to hold on to jobs or come back to work. 
in developing yeah. countries. Yeah. So, so it's not a it's it's not that simple a, a comparison to 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 make, and certainly the U.S. can learn from the experiences of uh, developing countries in some ways. What are policies or maybe programs that you think are important to improve the lives of people with disabilities in general, but especially in developing countries? Okay. Um, well. As a country develops economically, typically you'd see new infrastructure being built, so new roads, buildings, new schools, healthcare facilities. So one obvious um, policy to adopt is to have accessibility as as a priority. Um, so you want to make all these new f- uh, infrastructure buildings physically accessible instead of retrofitting them later on. Um, you want to improve access to healthcare, make it cheaper to get healthcare, improve the quality of um, of healthcare. If you think of a, a famous uh, person with disability like the astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, um, well, after he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's di- disease when he was 21, he had access to high quality medical care. He had access to personal uh, assistance. Um, so he he was able to continue working and and have a, a happy family life. So, um, so access to healthcare is is key. Uh, improving attitudes is also important. Uh, what do you mean by improving attitudes? Uh, um, um, have well media awareness campaigns to ch- to make attitudes more positive regarding um, the the potential. Um, that people with disabilities have in terms of their participation in school, in employment, in society in general. So fi- basically fighting negative uh, stereotypes. Um, and, and some countries are have programs uh, to, to, to deal with that. For instance, in Haiti, there's a weekly um, TV program that tries to address negative attitudes, so show people with disabilities in a positive light, share information regarding disability, uh, and make disability a visible uh, phenomenon. Uh, and then, of course, we mentioned education. Uh, that's an important policy area. Um, you know, I can, I have, in the course of my research, I've met uh, many people who who think education was key in making them um have a fulfilling life. Uh, and by education, so, uh, you mean providing them with a quality education? Yeah, quality and inclusive education. So, for instance, uh, Kamal Lamichani from Nepal is someone who grew up, um, who was born blind and did not have access to schooling uh, until age 12. When he went to school, um, well, opportunities um you know, then came to him and he was able to have a very successful... Um, Who is well, he? Kamal Lamichane. He's now an as- associate professor um, at the New University of Tsukuba in Japan. Um, so uh, it's, he's an, an example of someone who was given an opportunity to, to access schooling, did well and, and, and had opportunities later on in terms of employment and social participation in Nepal and internationally. Um, and then finally, we, we need to collect uh, more data on disability in a systematic way. And I'm not saying that to keep myself fully employed and <laughs> occupied as a social scientist, but to keep track of how people with disabilities are doing globally, keep track of 
uh, of um, of how programs and policies are working. We have new um, legal instruments like the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, but we have little way to actually monitor how people with disabilities are, are doing worldwide. Is there anything that can be done to either prevent some of these disabilities in other countries? In developing countries? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so prevention plays, it, it, it needs to play an important role in developing countries. Um, there are a lot of disabilities that are preventable. Um, so those associated with malnutrition, those associated with um, well, lack of access to healthcare, such as um, ear infections that may lead to hearing limitations, permanent or temporary. So there, there is a lot re- associated with poverty that, that can be done to, to prevent disability. What have you learned um, so far from your research that may have surprised you? that you weren't even anticipating or expecting? Did you run across anything at all that just, you know? Yeah, perhaps uh, one thing that surprised me in a recent study um, on uh, disability in 15 developing countries, um, we found that, so in, in almost all of these 15 countries, we found that people with disabilities were more likely to experience uh, deprivation, so low educational attainment or h- high healthcare expenditures, low probability of work. Um, but we, we found that the um, people with, with disabilities were doing worse, um, relatively worse compared to people without disabilities in the middle-income countries compared to the low-income countries. What are so, some of the middle-income countries? So middle-income countries, uh, for instance, you... Uh, um, Mauritius, uh, Vietnam, these are low, middle-income countries. Low-income country would be uh, Burkina Faso, for instance. Uh, so in, the, in, in countries that are considered as very poor, we found little um, difference in socioeconomic well-being compared to countries that are doing better, that are middle-income. So one um, one hypothesis coming out of this study is that as a country develops, you know, perhaps inequality between people with and without disability gets worse uh, because of uh, because new opportunities arise with economic growth. But the, the, this is one group, people with disabilities, who perhaps ha- faces barriers in accessing these new opportunities. So that was a surprise. So moving forward, how do you see the U.S. beginning to, or do you see the U.S. beginning to change the way it views persons with disabilities? So th- there has been a lot of progress um, in in recent years and since the American with Disabilities Act of 1990. Uh, there is uh, still a lot of work to do. Uh, for instance, on regarding employment, um, you know, and, and so perhaps one area where I like to to, to see changes and where um, attitudes could be changed is uh, is around disability and the potential to to work. People have disabilities, and very often 
can continue uh, work successfully. Uh, so if we could stop defining disability in terms of work inability or focusing our attention to, uh, to, to work inability and instead look, of, look at disability as, in, as one of our many forms of differentiation, but that does not necessarily affect um, employment. Sophie, why did you choose to focus your work on, on disabilities? Um, well, we see um, very high levels of uh, inequality, social and economic inequality within countries like the U.S. or, or between countries. And we also see perhaps more and more forms of differentiations, uh, so based on gender, race, national origin, sexual orientation, and disability. So I've been interested in these different forms of differentiation and in diversity. Uh, more broadly in the labor market and in uh, in society. Uh, so focusing on disability is one way of studying inequalities uh, in society. And from the perspective of my own uh, discipline, economics, I'm interested in um, policies, programs that can unlock the, uh, the vast potential of, of minorities, such as people with disabilities, how we can move from initiatives that are driven by, by charity to initiatives that are driven um, by justice. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Sophia Mitra, with the Fordham University Economics Department. I'd also like to thank my producers, Megan Connor and Blake Christie. You can follow Fordham Conversations on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and listen to past shows on our weekly iTunes podcast. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs>